Hi, I'm Elise Lunen, co-host with Gwyneth of the Goop podcast. Today's guest is New York Times bestselling author Ada Calhoun. Before we get to our conversation, I want to thank our friends at Kettle One Botanical who helped make today's episode possible. The Goop team loves a good bar cart. We sell a beautiful one on the site, custom built by designer Chris Earle. And if you've come to one of our pop-ups or in Goop Health, you might have sampled some of the custom cocktails that go along with it, which are often made with Kettle One Botanical. Kettle One Botanical, for the uninitiated, is vodka distilled with real botanicals and made with non-GMO grain. There's no sugar and no carbs and no artificial sweeteners or flavors. You can order your own Kettle One Botanical at drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. New York Times bestselling author Ada Calhoun is the author of Why We Can't Sleep, Women's New Midlife Crisis. I can't recommend this book enough. Today, Ada and I explore the struggles Generation X women face when they approach midlife. Growing up in this generation, we were taught to believe we could do anything. Somewhere along the way, that got translated into feeling like we have to do everything. Ada explains how the pressures of caregiving, family, successful careers all tend to fall on the shoulders of women, and how we feel like we have to handle it all seamlessly. And on top of that, many women live in a state of fear and anxiety surrounding money. Her point, we have a right to be frustrated. Ada reminds us that it's okay to put ourselves first, that we don't have to deny ourselves small pleasures, like ordering the latte every now and then, and most importantly, we are not alone in this. As women, we have to remember how to move away from criticism and towards support. Suddenly we had the opportunity, at least in theory, to, to do all of those things. And that, like, a lot of the women told me that they felt like the whole you can do anything became somehow in their head, that means I have to do everything. Okay, let's get to my chat with Ada Calhoun. Well, thank you for your book. Oh. I loved your book. I'm so glad. And as a Gen Xer, I'm on the younger side, but I'm firmly in there. What is is the parameter? 1984? Different people say different things. So like Pew says it's sort of conservative, and they say 1965 to 1980. But then I've seen 61 to like 84, somewhere in there. Yeah, I'm 79. So I I make it. Firmly in there. I'm firmly in. By any measure. Yeah, so reading your book was like... There were so many cultural references that felt right at home. The parenting style that you described of sort of benign neglect mm-hmm. and lack of protections is was very consistent with my own 
childhood. Did you grow up in LA or? No, I grew up in Montana. Oh. Yeah, and it's funny because the things that my my parents allowed us to see and do and the way that we ran free mm-hmm. in nature in Montana where there are, you know, They're, predatory there animals. Yeah. yeah, mountain lions, yeah. bears. Is so inconsistent with how my mom is today. Yeah. It's wild. Mm-hmm. Things have changed. And, you know, you sort of do such a beautiful job of expressing how the Gen X woman sits in sort of like a no man's land of completely, of kind of having the short end of the stick on all sides. Yeah. Is that fair? I think that's fair. Well, I just think a, a run of bad luck. Yeah, would would be a good description. So you know, we just we kind of hit one bad financial trap after another mm-hmm. growing up, and then we had very little support because of the attitude that you uh, mentioned. And then also, forty percent of us were children of divorce. Wow, yeah, that's staggering statistic. Yeah, and obviously, you know, you there are so many beautiful quotes in your book, and you sort of one of the things, the central theses that you set up is sort of the way that. We've been pitted against each other. You call it a tedious propaganda campaign about the mommy wars. and But that we're really an experiment in crafting a higher achieving, more fulfilled, more well-rounded version of the American woman. In midlife, many of us find that the experiment is largely a failure. But this idea that we sort of sit between, again, I'm going to read you, and then I promise I'll stop reading you passages from your book. <laughs> Gen X women spend lots of time minimizing the importance of their uncomfortable or confusing feelings. They often tell me that they're embarrassed to even bring them up. Some of the unhappiest women I spoke with, no matter how depressed or exhausted they were, apologized for whining. Almost every one of them also described herself as lucky. So it's this plethora of opportunity created by the generation that came ahead of us, and yet as you mentioned, lack of economic opportunity, an overwhelming abundance of choice, mm-hmm. mounting expectations, and no one had punctured the myth that women can have it all. Yeah, I think it was it was definitely a perfect storm. And I had a lot of women say things to me like, you know, we were sold a bill of goods. Mm-hmm. We were told, reach for the stars, and you can be anything, even president, and don't be a nurse, be a doctor and strive more. But we weren't given the support that would make any of those things easy or even functional for a lot of women. So, you know, men didn't go into the home in the same numbers that women went out into the workforce in droves. And it didn't get easier to have one income. It got much, much harder. So most households, you need both people working, even if one person would rather stay back at home with the kids. And like you said, you have this change in parenting. So you're much more hands-on with the kids and there are higher expectations there. And one thing after the other just changed in a way that put more and more pressure on women without actually giving any additional resources or support to them mm-hmm. in, in their efforts to achieve all of this. It's funny, and you say these higher expectations, but what it, I think, manifests as, too, is so much judgment, right? Yeah. And this, what you call, like, the, the propaganda campaign of pitting women against each other, mothers who stay home, mothers who work women who choose not to have children mm-hmm. at all, right. and that we are sort of at each other's throats in heaping judgment and shame, or the implication of that, or the way that we react, assuming that that's the intent. Yeah. And so we've sort of become each other's worst nightmares yeah. instead of the support that we should all be. Like, there is no perfect 
choice, that's for sure. Right? And this, I, yeah. And I think that I've started to think it's a real conspiracy to keep women fighting with one another instead of looking at the real problems. Like, we're all in the same boat. Like, if we came up in this generation, we all had the same hopes and aspirations and dreams. And then we, most of us didn't get all the things we wanted for a lot of really complicated reasons that didn't involve not working hard enough. You know, right. I think this generation of women has worked very, very hard. And, and yet not everyone has what they want, right? Some people wanted a family and didn't get it or wanted a career that was mm -hmm. more fulfilling and didn't get it. And we're all, we're all struggling with the same feelings and yeah. the same issues and the idea that we made bad choices and it's our fault if we didn't get all the things we hoped we would. I, I just think it's, it's wrong. I think there were systematic, systemic yeah. contexts to all of this that we really need to look totally. at. And it is, it is a conspiracy of shame because yeah. wherever you sit in terms of what you've achieved or not achieved, you know, I certainly remember hearing even about friends who that they like that their education was wasted on them. Oh yeah. Which is such a shitty and terrible <laughs> thing to say, you yeah. know? Or you know, it it's it is as you explain cr creating an incredibly pervasive and painful midlife crisis for like you and your research like so many women who who I know. Yeah. You know, and even when you're I think about myself I have a full-time job. I have two young children. I have a functioning, almost happy marriage. Yeah. And yet it's the shame mm -hmm. that I feel and the concern about, around things that I don't have that much control, like can, how will my children fare in the world? I mean, right. I guess I do have some control, but, <laughs> but you know, my youngest is going through an attachment phase and just didn't, is like having hysterics at preschool every day and mm -hmm. I'm here in New York and of course that fills me with shame and I'm right. like oh I'm sure the teachers think I'm such a bunk mom <laughs> but this is the reality yeah. right like we're all having that experience in some form mm -hmm. yeah well and one thing this one generational expert woman told me that I thought was so interesting was that in our mothers and grandmothers generations that women would maybe judge themselves on a couple of things they would say like you know how am I doing at my job or how's my house and marriage or how are my kids? But that women of this generation tend, we tend to judge ourselves on like 20 things mm -hmm. minimum and we think we should ace them all equally. So we should be just killing it at work and just our kids should be in perfect shape at every moment of every day and our marriage should be super hot and sexy and we should be, you know, look fantastic mm -hmm. and just one thing after the other. And then if any of those things isn't a 10 out of 10 that we judge ourselves and look for the self-help book or the serum or whatever it is that's going to fix that thing because we have to get everything up up to code. And that it's just so much pressure. So much pressure and not necessarily actually in alignment with what we might want because, you know, this is the conversation that we have at Goop a lot is this exploration around sort of the dissonance sometimes between what we think we want yeah. or should want and then like what's actually Mm -hmm. What are our deepest desires? And can we not only identify them, but can we name them? Yeah. And so, so much of it is, I know I need to care, mm -hmm. or I know I need to want this, and yet it might be completely disconnected from like, my deepest desires. Yeah. No, I think it's it's a great question that we should all ask ourselves. And I, I think one, one thing that I kept asking women I was 
talking to was, um, and I interviewed a couple hundred women, and I would say things like, you know, well, what what would be enough? Because a lot of them were saying this isn't enough or mm-hmm. in this area or that area. And it was very hard, actually, for them to describe what would be. Like, how much savings would you have to have in order to feel mm-hmm. secure, you know, or or how high would you have to get in the hierarchy at work in order to feel like you'd really made it? And I think a lot of women, and I've, I've been guilty of this too, like just we see what's not there and not what is there. Totally. I mean, that's the truest fall- like fallacy of all, that there is enough, you know? And I think that it's for our generation and probably true for all generations that these things are put out as sort of hurdles or the finish line, finding someone to marry you. Mm-hmm or having children, or getting a promotion, that somehow the achievement of that means you're done, and you're good. And that's the biggest lie of all, right? Mm -hmm. Like, life is hard, and you talk about this in the book. It's hard. It requires consistent effort and disappointment and disillusionment. It's also wonderful, but we're all, like, we're, we're running for something that doesn't exist. Right. I think that's really well said. And like you said, marriage as a happy ending or, you know, getting the job as a happy ending, like when you get to midlife, you really realize that that is not the case, that it's Mm -hmm. just the opening chapter. Yeah. You write about sort of how our generation, and we grew up on a lot of TV and tremendous amount of advertising, and that we're the most susceptible to advertising, which Mm -hmm. I thought was a fast, you have a statistic in there that was fascinating. But is that it? Do you think it's that we've all been subconsciously trained or programmed to, to like, through movies and culture and whatnot? Is that where it comes from? Like, where do you think it comes from? I think it comes from a, a lot of places. I mean, one thing that a lot of the experts I interviewed told me was that women in general, we tend to be hard on ourselves and to be very demanding of ourselves, but that that can get triggered and kind of sent into overdrive by certain things. And that for our generation, one of those things was that we wanted to fulfill all our like mothers and grandmothers dreams, yeah. that there were things they couldn't do and wanted to do. And suddenly we had the opportunity, at least in theory, to, to do all of those things. And that like... A lot of the women told me that they felt like the whole you can do anything became somehow in their head. That means I have to do everything. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny. I feel like my mom, so my mom went to a, you know, grew up poor family, oldest of seven. She went to a now defunct nursing school. My dad's uh-huh. a doctor. It's interesting because throughout my life, my mom was was probably to this day, actually, mm-hmm. would tell me that all she wants is for me to be a nurse because there's oh. job security, there's yeah. good jobs, there's always a need of nurses. But she didn't, she she ran my dad's office, ran, like, she was a compulsive workaholic in sort of nonprofits and wherever mm-hmm. needed. And I think that there was a lot of unprocessed pain about not having opportunity. Right. And so I feel like it's not that she put that on me ever, but that there was this unspoken catharsis that happened to when I was in my 20s, struggling at the early part of my career, Mm -hmm. having a tough time, like super single, super broke. Mm -hmm. And I think that for me, even if she wasn't explicitly asking me to, wanting to live vicariously through me, I think in observing that, she 
you know, she's a doctor's wife in small town Montana, could like go and play tennis during the day. And she's amazing life, like in nature. Right. She, I think it became a good mirror for her to also then be like, wait, I have an awesome life. Oh, interesting. And meanwhile, I was sort of like, my life is <laughs> not awesome right now. But it's, it's true. Because yeah. I think so many of us, it is that pressure. And I kept going and persevered, but I certainly had the same fairy tale fantasies of almost all of my peers, which right. was like, is someone really rich and awesome going to come and marry me and take me out of this grind? <laughs> which didn't happen, <laughs> thankfully. It's, it's so interesting, too, that like she was able then to see through you that that, she, that there were things about her life that were quite wonderful. And I think part of it, and this I've heard from other like uh, friends of mine who are in the boomer generation, that they had free time. Like yeah. they, they, if they worked, they worked nine to five jobs. And then also women, of course, by the time they got into their 40s and 50s, they were usually empty nesters, right, right. at this age that we're at now. And there's something about that that's very freeing, whereas now women in their 40s and 50s, because we delayed kids and because we have to work, most of us, just to kind of keep afloat, and, and we also want to usually, we're so busy. And we're doing all the things all at once while we're in our 40s, while we're in perimenopause, which yeah. is just a new, it's just a new amount of pressure and stress at this age. Yeah, absolutely. With little time, at least for me, for, you know, friends and play yeah. and which are the things that are regenerative. That's right. But yeah, and perimenopause, I mean, you do a great exploration of that period, I think, for so many women where there's that yet another hormonal change that we go through. You know, we experience so many men get a really pretty easy time of it. Whereas, you know, we have matrescence, we have children, mm -hmm. perimenopause, menopause. Like it seems to be particularly in this country, sort of an, just an ongoing struggle with hormones yeah. and body chemistry and the, the impact on our mood. And, and we don't always find, you know, there aren't, like it's not menopause is not a disease. Right. And yet there are so few people who understand how yeah. to hold hands and help women yes. move through it. And instead it's like, you're fine. Yeah. Go home. Yeah. It feeling like shit yeah. seems to be the fate of women because that's what we're told. <laughs> it's like the normalization of the yeah. female experience. Well said. Um, <laughs> I think that is the message we get over and over again. And I think the fact that perimenopause and menopause are so taboo and people don't talk about them. And I actually had trouble sometimes getting women to go into detail about their experiences about it because like one friend of mine, she'd suffered with hot flashes just terribly for years and these really severe mood swings. And she was having a super hard time. And she said, you know, I don't even want to talk about it because it's like saying I'm closing up shop as a sexual being. Right. And I just think she was ashamed. And, and she didn't have the education around it. And her doctor was saying basically like, well, either you'll feel better in a little while or we'll put you on antidepressants. And that is what a lot of women mm. around the country are hearing. Right. Instead of instead of addressing the hormonal fluctuations yeah. and 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 it goes back. I mean, it goes back, you know, when Premarin first emerged, which was sort of the first hormonal therapy. Mm -hmm. It wasn't it hadn't been studied. It ended up doing a lot of damage mm -hmm. to hormone replacement therapy, which has obviously been dramatically more fine tuned. Yeah. But and it was pushed on women as Premarin pregnant merit pregnant mare's urine, mm -hmm. it was pushed with this, with the storyline of, 
you are essentially eunuchs. You are castrated. You are sexless. You are horrible <laughs> right. to be around. Right. And there's this promise of being feminine forever. Feminine forever. Yep. That yep. was the book. That was the book. Mega bestseller. Mega, mega, mega bestseller. Yeah. And, you know, pushing what proved to be at the time very damaging hormone, a lot of increase of breast cancer and uterine cancer, which mm-hmm. scared women, yeah. rightfully, to now a point where there are a lot of much better options. Yes. Lifestyle, hormone replacement therapy that's tuned to your body. Much lower doses much than lower they, doses. they used earlier and, and much more specific. Totally. I mean, yeah. the first birth control pill that came out was revolutionary, but it had, as they came to understand, much, 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 much later, 10 times as much exactly. estrogen as what was required and there was no progesterone. So now it's the science is much better mm-hmm. and yet not very many doctors know how to treat women and sort of help them and sort of give them a survey of all of the things available. I was so shocked by some of those numbers about the, like there, I think it was one in five gynecologists study menopause medicine specifically. Yeah. And so they just don't have the training in it. And I've seen that in my own life because of my wonderful health insurance bounce from doctor to doctor. And, you know, one of them I went with clear perimenopause symptoms. And she said, okay, we can put you on Serenol, which is like a bee pollen, like Swedish bee pollen that you order off the internet. And that was the solution. And she said, if that doesn't work, we'll do antidepressants. And and that was it. That was all the information I got from from like a doctor in a major city in this day and age Isn't with health like insurance. A strange off-label for <laughs> an antidepressant? It was very strange, yes. But but again, like so many of the women that I interviewed got very similar haphazard advice from their doctors. We'll get back to Ada Calhoun in just a second. Detox month is all wrapped up at Goop, but I'm still trying to keep things relatively clean, and our food team is always looking for the highest quality ingredients in every season to work within the kitchen. And that includes the bar cart. The team has developed a number of cocktails using Kettle One Botanical, which is vodka distilled with real botanicals and made with non-GMO grain. There's no carbs and no sugar, and no artificial sweeteners or flavors. There are three Kettle One Botanical varietals, cucumber and mint, grapefruit and rose, and peach and orange blossom and they all make for really fresh-tasting cocktails. If you're looking for inspiration, see the Goop recipes for sumac, salty dog, or the peach and flowers, or just grab some fever tree soda and mix a botanical spritz. You can order Kettle One Botanical on drizzly.com to try it out yourself. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com. On the average day, I spend a lot of time indoors, and I definitely spend too much time looking at screens. Because I work at Goop, I know all about earthing or walking barefoot outside to help me stay grounded. And more recently, I've been learning about the role indoor lighting plays in overall health and well-being. Brilli is a new home lighting brand designed to support your natural biological rhythms. Brilli's Charge Up Collection is designed to stimulate the brightness and clarity of natural daylight. These bulbs are ideal for working under and powering through your to-do list. Brilli's Wind Down Collection is designed to simulate late afternoon and evening light. Picture a soft, warm glow. There's less than 1% blue light in these bulbs to help you unwind at the end of the day and prepare to sleep. And their Get and Sync Collection allows you to customize the light spectrum throughout the day, simulating the full range of effects from sunrise to sunset to support a healthy sleep-wake cycle. 
While Brilli's lighting is unique, everything runs simply. You don't need any special software or hardware. Just turn on the lights and you're getting the wellness benefits. To try Brilli for yourself, head to BeBrilli.com and use code GOOP to get 15% off your first order. That's B-E-B-R-I-L-L-I.com and use code GOOP. Back to my chat with Ada Calhoun. There's great, great information out there. I mean, one doctor who we've worked with extensively in the past at Goop is Sarah Gottfried, Harvard-trained functional doctor. He sort of really does an incredible job. She has many books, and we have some really thorough stories with her on the site about all, like, here is your roadmap. Here are the lifestyle modifications that you can make. Here are the tests to determine if you do on hormones the right ones. Mm-hmm. This is the difference between FDA-approved and non-FDA-approved. She prefers FDA-approved mm-hmm. for many reasons. Yeah. But, like, the information is out there. It's just, again, another job for us right. to go out and find it, yeah. which seems to be another part of the this generation's work, which is not only do we have all of these opportunities and we need to take advantage of all of them, but it's also our job to be empowered and to advocate for what we want. Yes, exactly. All the systemic issues have been put on us to fix. That's right. And and I think you see that in the whole like lean in movement where yeah. it's like one more thing that, you know, so if you if you don't get ahead at work, then again, it's like, well, did you did you try lean in? Did you yeah. try, you know, knowing your value and asking for the raise and doing all this stuff? And if you didn't, maybe you need to look in the mirror because maybe it's your fault. Right. And I just, you know, one woman after another who I interviewed said they felt really oppressed by all of this, all of this advice and all of these books telling them all the things they should be doing because they felt like if they weren't getting ahead, then it had to only be on their shoulders. Right. It's sort of this, like this, this, someone had, I loved this story. It was in the Chronicle. The writer had gone to a number of different sort of female self-empowerment conferences and she'd come to Ingoop Health. And so this sounds like a shameless plug, but (laughs) she said, she was saying about Ingoop Health, she was like, it's the only one that wasn't gendered. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting because it wasn't, it wasn't like the, the self-empowerment movement that we're pushing on people. Again, it's that you fix it. Mm-hmm. Somehow we're not fixing it. Therefore, it's the same with like other social justice issues. You know, it's, right. it's not the people who are marginalized, it's not their job Mm -hmm. to educate or fix these systems. It's the job of the people who created the systems in the first place. Mm -hmm. And so I know in a lot of, within a lot of the conversations that you talk, that you had for this book, like the midlife crisis, what were the most common manifestations of it? Like how is it, how are women expressing this? Um, so it was much quieter, typically, than the, the stereotypical male midlife crisis, which, of course, involves the flashy car mm-hmm. and the affairs and all that stuff. A lot of the women that I talked to were maybe, like, smoking out the window secretly or, like, one was going to movies in the middle of the day alone and, like, crying. Mm. There were just People were sneaking their suffering in around the edges of caretaking often. So, like, they would get to the school a few minutes early before they were picking their kid up and just, like, you know, quietly, like, weep or something. I mean, it, it sounds really bad, but what I thought was so interesting was they were still getting everything done. So a lot of times even their partners or their friends didn't realize that they were suffering, that they were this tired. And they were they were hiding it very well. Yeah. 
what what do you see as the path forward? I know the millennials yeah. are more promising. Like mm-hmm. there's a better better equity between the sexes and dividing up work. Yeah, they don't seem to have the same do it all mentality. They seem to get that that's a bad. We were sold a bad <laughs> a bad line. But wh- how do for for women who are Gen X like what? How do we unwind this? Yeah, so there are a few things you can do, I think. And one is to find a good doctor and to take care of the the physical stuff as quickly and as well as possible because I think that often colors everything else. So if you have this ovarian fluctuation going on and you're not sleeping and you have like weird weight stuff and all that, like it can cloud everything. So I think really getting physically seen to is important. I think knowing that this is a really hard time of life, especially for this generation, and knowing that it will be over at some point, things will get easier, is helpful. And then I think just getting around other women is so valuable. Starting clubs with Mm -hmm. other women, and I know it sounds like one more thing to do, but actually that has maybe helped me the most of anything that I've done. Just, you know, one night a month, two hours, and you meet up with a bunch of other women and talk honestly about what's going on and or just hang out and it, it's it's amazing how much good comes out of those times yeah no I agree and then for the women for for the people who are sort of like struggling whether it's in their careers or they're feeling that they don't have the career that they wanted or expected to have or similarly like at home who are struggling like how do you like in talking and gaining the collective wisdom of all of these women, like how do how are people successfully sort of unwinding that? Is it through talking to their friends or? I think that helps a lot. I think talking honestly about what everybody else is going through. One thing that I'm hearing from a lot of women who have read this book is that it relieved them of this this illusion they had that everyone else had it figured out and it made them feel less alone in their frustration and also gave them some sense of the context to what they were going through. So they were able to see that, that this is generational. So one of the statistics in there is that like only one in four women of this generation will out earn her father. Yeah. And I think you see things like that and you think, okay, well then if I have credit card debt or if all the managerial jobs went away, right when I was about to be a manager or things like that, it's, it doesn't feel like, you failed, you're able to see that, no, this is a generational crisis. Yeah. I mean, this this statistic was staggering, that the typical 40-year-old woman in America who works full-time is making $36,000 a year. Yeah. Amazing, right? So, you know, and we're the first downwardly mobile generation, and we might not be the last. So I do worry about millennials, too, because a lot of these things will probably hit them at least as hard. I think it is wonderful that the caregiving is being split more mm-hmm. between men and women. And that's going to be huge, I think. But it's still true that the costs of healthcare and education and housing, I don't think they're going to get a lot more reasonable in right. the next 20 years. I think that's going to continue to be a really, a really hard thing. Yeah. And I think that that only stokes the, you know, those feelings too of not having enough because for certainly for so many people, they don't. Yeah. Like they literally don't. So they literally don't. Yeah. And I think that you know, we're told, oh, first world problems or you're a bunch of whiners mm-hmm. or, you know, something like that as a generation. And then you look at how much we're trying to do with how little support and how many headwinds. And I think it's pretty reasonable to be frustrated. I don't think it's being ungrateful or whining. And again, all these women, they're still showing up with the gift basket for the teacher, you know, and they're still helping their kids with their homework or they're still you know, going on the long work conference weekends and they're doing all the things. So why can't we look at 
at just how difficult their lives are. Yeah. And then and then when you get at the emotion underneath, too, it, those things are still consistent. Like, um, I know you spoke to women who had socked away half a million dollars to a million dollars in retirement savings. And yet even those those people are like, that's not. Oh, yeah. They enough. were convinced they were going to be like in a cardboard box on the street. They were just so scared. And I think part of it is how we grew up and this lingering trauma in a lot of a lot of women of this generation, this sense that we have to take care of ourselves. No one's going to help us, which I just heard from one woman after another. And yeah, just this sense that there's no there's no safety net. There's yeah. no security from coming from anywhere. So you really have to look out for yourself. Yeah. And that lingering trauma that you're talking about it in the context of being latchkey kids and yeah, children and of left divorce to fend for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. and allowed to watch anything and everything. <laughs> I mean, it's so funny how far we've swung in the opposite. Like the, when you were talking about getting early seasons of Sesame Street. Oh, yeah. And, and there's a like, warning label. And there's a warning label because of... But then you watch them, you're like, oh, yeah, because like they're jumping off buildings and like playing <laughs> in like, you know, in empty lots around like broken glass. And you're like, oh, yeah, that that is different. Yeah. But we were left, you know, and maybe it's good, but somehow, somewhere in the middle is probably the right place to be. Yeah. And I think millennials might be doing that, honestly. I think that the pendulum swung so far from the latchkey kid um, to the sort of helicoptering. And I just, I see a lot of my millennial friends being very sensible. Um, yeah. A highly reasonable adults somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Yeah. But I do think that, that that's an interesting, like the, that idea of I have to take care of myself because no one else is attending mm-hmm. to my needs makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And then you compound on that the expectation of t- can, taking care of everyone around you and yeah. their needs as well. Well, and the caregiving just falls to women. I think the average age is like, was it 49? For a, 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 The average caregiver is like a 49-year-old woman who's also working full-time. And there are a lot less people available in this generation to take care of the boomers of whom there are a lot more, right? right. So, so we're in this very funny place where we waited to have kids often. We have these like little kids, aging parents, kids need more help, and parents need more help too because they're living much longer with chronic conditions. Right. It's a perfect storm. Perfect shitstorm. <laughs> well said. And, you know, you think about some of the other sort of pernicious social conditioning, some of which is, you know, around at how we need to look and how attractive we need to be mm-hmm. and how much we need to be in control of our bodies when often our bodies do not want to be controlled. Yeah, especially at this age. Yeah. No, it's just totally, it's not a cause and effect world anymore. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. it's not a calories in equals mm-hmm. calories out <laughs> equation, which is so strange. It feels like such a betrayal, but that's the reality yeah. of, of aging. And the other, you know, I think, and I know your book, doesn't go deeply into this, but I feel like we were also fed a lot of mythology about money. Mm-hmm. For you sure. Know, I feel like in the media, it's like, even when I think about the movies that I watched mm-hmm. and sort of what was assigned to wealth, uh-huh. made it seem like something that only bad people <laughs> <laughs> wanted. Right. You know, there was a lot of I think, and I, I feel like there is a stat in the book about how the Gen X went into, like, more into, like, NGOs and sort of service-driven work right. than any other generation. But I feel like we were also sort of, like, duped into not prioritizing 
the making of money. Right. Well, it's a it's really interesting, I think, because our generation grew up on so much advertising. Like I just I look back now and think of how many hours, many, many hours a week I watched just of commercials. Yeah. So I think we had this this sense of like needing and wanting at the same time combined with the sense it was really bad to be like an Alex P. Keaton kind of acquisitive person. And I, I do think it's led to a lot of very conflicting instincts in us around money. Yeah. I mean, I think about my favorite movies, which I was just talking about this with my brother. And these are the ones that we had on VHS tape and watched repeatedly, but it's like Secret of My Success, Ruthless People, Mm -hmm. Trading Places. And, you know, it's, it's interesting, like when I actually think about what that, how I might have interpreted what it, what it means to be wealthy. You could do a really good dissertation on what all those movies did to us. implied. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the reality is, like, clearly, and as evidenced by our generation, women do not have enough money, and we need money. Yeah. Money in the right hands is a beautiful <laughs> thing, you yes. know? Good people need money. Right. Yes. And it's, and it's true that we have not saved enough as uh, you know for our retirement or mm-hmm. for a lot of other things we're going to need and like the caregiving stuff which is it hits us really hard a lot of us and yet we got blamed for that like yeah. oh you didn't you know you got all those lattes and that's why you don't have any savings when the reality is like if you graduate into recession and you hit one financial crisis after another. And of course, the housing crisis hit Gen X harder than any other generation, as did many of the the big, like the dot-com bust and all this other stuff. And then you take time off to care for anybody. Of course, you don't have enough money saved for your retirement. Like you're just, there's nothing, again, there's nobody there to help you, right? There's no, usually there's no matching. There's not a support system in place to make it possible. Yeah. Sally, Sally Krawcheck, who's one of my heroes and money. I mean, she like that, the whole latte thing just drives her batshit yes, crazy. Yes, She's been great on that subject. As yeah. Well. yeah. I mean, and it's true. It's like it's always about sort of self-denial of small pleasures. Right. And that somehow that's we've, – we've just given away our financial future. Right. Just by – you know, that it's all about austerity and saving, 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 and not about, you know, exploiting the markets in right. the way that – you know, men are much more yeah. comfortable doing. And I think it's it's true that that message for Gen X, I think we've, we tend to absorb messages like don't buy a coffee because I think especially women are, have not had a lot of pleasure or joy in, in a lot of their life. Just again, this is a generational thing, right? Like our parents had free love and all this other stuff. Like we, most of us became sexually active right around the time of yeah. AIDS and, and it was all during just say no and, and mothers against drunk driving and all this stuff. There's this song, I think it's Kevin Gilbert and it, the lyric is we were the cleanup crew for parties. We were too young to attend. Totally. It's true. We carried, it's like all the liberation followed by all the consequences. Yes. And we heard only, and we had, again, as a generation, no one taking care of our needs, even talk to us about it, right? Mm-hmm. And just the consequences. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's fair. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Ada Calhoun. For more, head to adacalhoun.com. That's A-D-A-C-A-L-H-O-U-N. And make sure to pick up a copy of Why We Can't Sleep. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. 
hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back this Thursday for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.